Hello and welcome back to Double Take, the Newton Investment Management podcast that minds the big ideas driving the future of investing. I'm Rafe Lewis, head of Newton's specialist research teams, and with me, as always, is Newton investigative research analyst Jack Encarnacio. Hey, before we dive into this episode, as always, if you like what you're hearing, please hit like, subscribe, and by the way, if you'd like to hear us cover a topic and you haven't heard us do it yet, by all means, ping us on LinkedIn or write to me at rafael.lewis at newtonim.com and throw a suggestion our way. We are all ears and we want this to be as interactive as possible. So anyway, this time we are focused on rare earths, uh, which you may have heard of. And if you haven't, they're the raw materials that are critical to so many technology products we rely on in today's society. Everything from smartphones, TVs, cameras, LED lights, computer monitors, and hard drives, but perhaps most pertinently to our this, this discussion here, rare earth magnets are the key inputs in electric vehicle motors. But the problem is that for some time, the majority of rare earths have come from China, which, as we know, has been increasingly at odds, especially from a geopolitical perspective with countries where a lot of electric vehicle innovation is taking place. This has led to urgent calls to diversify and localize the rare earth supply chain. And those calls were only intensified by Tesla's recent announcement that it plans to eliminate entirely the use of rare earth elements in its EV powertrains. Joining us to discuss this is Bob Gallion, who is a battery technology consultant. He owns a company called Gallion Energy LLC. But perhaps most pertinently to this, Bob was the chief technology officer and, in fact, employee number two at CATL, which is a Chinese battery giant that grew to become one of the largest lithium-ion battery suppliers for EVs in the world. Bob, great to have you here on Double Take. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to discuss the topics today. I'll be ready to receive questions. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to join you today. Excellent, Bob. So can you help perhaps lay a foundation for us first off, especially considering you were such a formative part of one of the key global players in the EV space? How did rare earths become such a seemingly indispensable part of electronics manufacturing? And why is the location of the supply and the processing of the supply so concentrated in certain areas? Well, I have to go back roughly three decades ago when I worked at Delco Remy Division of General Motors, where we were working on rare earth magnets. In fact, I'd have to go all the way back to the early 1980s as a young uh, chemist working in Delco Remy's laboratories. We used to play with the rare earth metals because I had to do x-ray fluorescence and x-ray diffraction. And part of the fun of that is you could take a spatula of the rare earth and throw it up into the fume hood and watch it ignite because it was highly reactive <laughs> to uh, oxygen. And you get a lot of very beautiful colors when these uh, rare earth uh, materials go into uh, oxygen. But we didn't do that too often because it's very expensive. But uh, and back in the day, uh, Delco Remy decided to create uh, a rare earth magnet manufacturing operation in Anderson, Indiana. But it, uh, many years later, it's found that it was a difficult business to be in. And many other companies around the world started getting into this manufacturing area. But what uh, what about it exactly is difficult here? Why why is this something that I mean? Well, a why are they called rare? Because my understanding is there are plenty of these minerals around, and it's just a matter of finding them and digging them out of the ground. 
Well, I think the the first the first problem is finding them. <laughs> Second problem is how you process them. Although I haven't been heavily on the processing side in the past, I have been in recent times. There's a company here literally in the state of Indiana that I'm working with that has come up with a brand new chromatographic separation technology that is probably the best separation technology for rare earths I've ever seen. Uh, it is followed by um, technology from Purdue University uh, and uh, work that was done at Eli Lilly many years ago in pharmaceuticals. You might ask, well, that makes no sense at all because pharmaceuticals are quite a, a departure from uh, rare earths. But in fact, the chemistry involved in separating them are very similar because they're done through what we call liquid chromatography process. So what's the situation in terms of that separation? What's innovative in your mind that might change the way we've traditionally sourced rare earths? Well, I see this as a secondary uh, operation after the ore is dug out of the ground and then pulverized and run through some form of uh, hydrometallurgical separation technology. Typically, so, so water we're talking here, you, Bob, right? Yes, but this process requires a whole lot less water than normal hydrometallurgical processing. Hydromet processes are extremely water intensive, and huge vats of waters, acids, and bases are used in creating and treating the minerals in order for them to be separated. The nice thing about the chromatographic separation technology is that it utilizes far less chemicals and far less water to produce the same products. And if you know what you're doing, you can control the process so that you get out very pure materials, such as the praseodymium, the neodymium, and the other deniums that are in the periodic chart that's hanging behind me in my office because my degrees were uh, in chemistry and biology, but I spent 47 years in engineering. So go figure. Got it. But let's setting aside the chromatographic novel process that you're talking about, right? It's still not probably particularly commercialized, I'm assuming. When we look at the way these rare earths are being processed right now, mainly in China, right, as we know, uh, I assume it is a fairly water-intensive and therefore environmentally fraught process, or uh, is that getting better? Well, I never got a chance to tour any of the uh, rare earth refining processes in China, but suffice it to say you're correct in your, your assessment that those plants do require a lot of water, a lot of uh, chemicals in order to get those properly process. My hope is, and this is one of the reasons upon my retirement from uh, CATL, when I came home to the United States, I promised our U.S. government that I would help in any way that I possibly can to help build the same culture here in the United States that was built in China. It's just that China had a dire need for electrification much more than the United States because they got five times as many people. Consequently, approximately five times the pollution because the materials that are processed, and this is something I argue with Americans all the time about, is that you don't get it, guys. There's five times as many people in that country. That's why they need five times as much material. This is why five times much resources are needed and utilized in 
processing materials than what would be in the United States. Bob, what do you make of the idea that we could power EV powertrains without any rare earths at all? You know battery chemistry well. Is that possible in your mind? Oh, absolutely, because uh, during my tenure at Delco Remy, we were making non-permanent magnet motors. Uh, They're bigger, they're bulkier, but they can be made in such a way that they are efficient. I think there's been some recent announcement by some major car companies that they're working aggressively to eliminate the permanent magnet motors. However, I think you're still going to see a preponderance of permanent magnets used in the industry, particularly smaller motors like window lifters and and other mechanisms that are on the mobility sector and also in some of those larger industrial uses for, let's say, linear motors and things like that are used in uh, large construction equipment, mining machines and things like that. Bob, could you take us through what it would take to nearshore rare earths metal processing? I mean, I'm sure that's Does the capacity exist? Um, Is it perhaps dormant from prior eras? Or do we have to build, you know, if we were to do it in the United States or in Australia or in Europe, uh, a lot more uh, processing capacity than than we have now? Well, since I was in Australia about three, four weeks ago, I could probably say that they are looking at putting that kind of infrastructure back into play. I keep telling many people, not only for battery materials, but also for rare earth materials, We need to build the capacity to process the materials, not specifically to mine them, because there may be more rich ore somewhere located outside the perimeter of the United States, and maybe getting that ore shipped into the United States and processed would be better than trying to mine it offshore, because we need that kind of uh, process capability here that will feed directly into our our, uh, electric motor manufacturing. Can you explain to us whether the advantage that the Chinese have right now is just a matter of capacity, or do they have a process advantage? Is there a technological advantage in the processing of these rare earths minerals in China that will take us a while to catch up to, or is it really just a matter of getting over the NIMBY aspects and, you know, some of the environmental permitting aspects? I think it's more the latter. I don't think there's been any major revolutionary process changes in how you process these rare earth materials until most recent times when I discovered this uh, chromatographic separation process that has been developed here in the United States. And uh, it is uh, revolutionary, in my opinion, because it does create much higher purity levels and it creates... um, Uh, a very distinct separation of those materials based on the elemental retention times in the uh, chromatographic column. And that's totally based on the uh, molecular orbital structure of the different elements, such as the praseodymium, the neodymium, and the other deniums on the periodic table. So rare earths, if they were gone tomorrow and we could no longer construct rare earths magnets in the drivetrains of these electric vehicles. Are you seeing any alternative technologies that you think really have promise at scale and with the kind of economics necessary for these low-margin you know, auto manufacturers? 
Well, Rafe, I'll put it this way. Uh, working on these permanent magnet motors 30 years ago and comparing the DC drive motors of yesteryear, because I worked on these on, if you can believe it or not, M60 and uh, T1 tanks that the U.S. military was working on, those were not permanent magnet motors. Those were motors that were driven by normal magnetism and a uh, field windings in an armature. We call them the 50T, 50MT cranking motors. <clears throat> Those motors didn't have any permanent magnets in them. They worked just fine. In fact, a lot of the AC motors that you go out and find in the industry today work perfectly fine without permanent magnets. It's just that they tend to be bigger and bulkier than permanent magnet motors. That's the whole novelty of the permanent magnets is you can make the machine smaller and you get really good output with them. So in the absence of permanent magnet materials, you can make motors. They're just not as efficient and they're bigger, bulkier, both gravimetrically and volumetrically inefficient compared to permanent magnets. I get it. So it would actually uh, impact the range of the vehicle then or the torque? Both. <clears throat> Got it. So are we headed then to a short-term outlook, Bob, where vehicles are less efficient if these motors are going to be bulkier in, in the absence of rare earths? Well, I have a lot of faith in uh, scientific principle. People will figure out how to take a non-permanent magnet motor and turn it into a more high-efficiency motor by some of the modernistic artificial intelligence. Um, I worked with a, uh, a genius-level engineer many years ago out of Rose-Holman, and he was showing me some advanced technologies using vectoring where they could actually change the field magnetism in the motor by advancing it electronically at a speed that I'd never heard of before. It was just amazing to hear this young man talk about this technology. Although I don't practice the in the field of rotating machines, I practice in the field of battery technology. But I know that these technologies exist out there. And if I can be so bold to say that mathematical modeling has enabled mankind to get into realms that we've never seen before. And this is what we're enabling both in battery technology, pharmaceuticals, metallurgical properties, um, even manufacturing processes are now being mathematically modeled in ways that we've never seen before, improving efficiencies and improving quality dramatically. So I have a great hope that in the absence, or if there is an absence of permanent magnet materials, that you're going to see a, a plethora of new concepts crop up. But I do also want to say that there are some new mining operations that are being considered by mankind. There are underwater deep sea mining vessels that are being developed. There are responsible mining operations underwater, and there's irresponsible mining operations underwater because there are types of uh, ore recovery that uses large machines that scour the ocean bed floor by scalping off a certain number of centimeters of the material that's at the ocean bed floor, which stirs up the silt, if you will, of the ocean bed floor from hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of being dormant, just laying there with some type of life form. There are companies out there developing technologies that use artificial intelligence with a vision system that looks at the nodules that lay at the ocean bed floor 
and determines whether or not there's a life form on that nodule. If there's a form of life that is known and it is programmed into the artificial intelligence, the robot will not pick up that nodule. But if the nodule does not have life form, it uses approximately a six foot long uh, tripod type of uh, pincher fingers to pick up the nodules and put it in the basket to be surfaced and then processed later. So I know that was a long-winded answer, <laughs> but um, I needed to get that in there because I'm not sure that there's going to be a shortage of rare earths once they start doing this underwater mining because those nodules not only contain copper, cobalt, nickel, manganese, but it also contains some rare earth percentages, albeit low percentages. Those low percentages, when concentrated, can turn into a pretty significant amount of rare earths and in the future. And those nodules, Bob, for the benefit of our audience, nodules meaning? A nodule is something between the size of a tennis ball and a softball that has taken hundreds of thousands of years to form. And they're typically formed around either like a sand particle or a piece of, uh, of um, shell or something, some kind of uh, uh inert material because once the deposition starts it's sort of like its own little miniature battery it has a reaction characteristic to it and uh, that reaction characteristic is that particles containing these elements are attracted to these nodule and they build upon themselves but it takes hundreds of thousands of years for these nodules to form in the ocean bed floor understandably because it's just like one degree centigrade above freeze, you know, free, one degree above freezing at those depths, and there's no sunlight. So these robots will go down to the ocean bed floor, somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 meters. That's a long way down there. So these have to be highly developed robotic systems that can withstand the pressure at these depths. But it also be, needs to be done in a responsible way so we do not damage the environment uh, the ecosystem, if you will, at the deep depths of the ocean, which are critical to the behavior of the overall ocean. Well, we've heard of gold rushes, but now we're talking about a rare earths rush at the bottom of the sea where presumably the law of the open oceans applies. I, I'm guessing it's kind of a land grab out there, literally, where you have arms grabbing land <laughs> and sending it up to the surface. Well, is that actually the yeah. case, or is there actually a cleanly demarcated territory where each nation could go and farm uh, certain areas without going to war? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in the um, policies and regulations of deep, deep water mining, but what I have understood is that any nation is allowed to issue a permit for underwater mining within a 200-mile distance of their shoreline. Outside that 200 miles, it is regulated by the United Nations. The United Nations has a very specific language and a, and a treaty in place with many nations around the world. Unfortunately, my understanding is the United States did not participate in it. Now, uh, many, many uh, companies that are working on this uh, are getting those permits through the United Nations, and they're going out and I would expect that within the next couple of years, you will see a lot of underwater mining going on. Uh, last question for me. Is this a cost-effective way of mining? 
I mean, how does that compare in terms of dollars and cents, pounds and euros to, uh, you know, what the Chinese are doing with their mines? Rafe, that's a great question, because if you look at underwater mining, the only diesel engine that's running to uh, power the whole mining operation is the boat that's sitting in the water that takes the robots out because the robots are run by electricity that's charged by the diesel gen set on the boat. But when you do strip mining, as an example, and that's how most of the rare earths are mined, either strip mining or under underground mining, both require large machines that are run off of a power source. Typically, those power sources are diesel engines. I see a, a quick transition uh, recently into electrified vehicles, but in the past, most of the mining operations require a great deal of diesel fuel to be burned to get the ore out. So a part of the carbon emissions calculations have to include the amounts of energy that is consumed by these large mining machines. So you go watch some of the giant Goliath uh, uh, backhoes mm-hmm. and the Goliath uh, trucks that haul the ore out of the out of the mines uh, burn enormous amounts of fuel. Whereas the underwater mining, you're not stripping the land, you're not digging or boring holes underground. It's a lot safer for human beings. Uh, so the loss of life will be significantly less and the amount of pollution will be significantly less. So when you ask the question, is the value proposition there? In terms of overall cost, I think you will see a good value proposition. But the best part of it, you have a very responsible ESG number out of this type of operation. So that question is perfectly placed, Ray, for uh, this discussion because responsible mining is so, so important for the future of our environment. If global warming is truly a reality and that we see that the pollution that is being produced is creating environmental and weather pattern changes, then this kind of an operation will become, let's say, commonplace and will help our our environment dramatically. Well, we look to the horizon and we look to the the sea beneath the horizon as well for the future sourcing of materials for electrification across the economy. Bob, we want to thank you for joining us and all the best uh, in, in your endeavors coming up. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Newton Investment Management North America, LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of the group of affiliated companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton or Newton Investment Management Newton. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, Newton Limited. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA, 
which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein have been, has been obtained by from third-party sources that are believe, believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. NIMNA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. ESG analysis refers to a range of internal and external qualitative and quantitative research. Newton manages a variety of strategies. Whether and how ESG considerations are assessed or integrated into Newton strategies depends on, on the asset classes and or the particular strategy involved, as well as the research and investment approach of each Newton firm. ESG may not be considered for each individual investment, and where ESG is considered, other attributes of an investment may outweigh ESG considerations when making investment decisions. Analysis of themes may vary de depending on the type of security, investment rationale, and investment strategy. Newton will make investment decisions that are not based on themes and may conclude that other attributes of an investment outweigh the thematic structure the security has been assigned to. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20IJN, in the conduct of investment business. Registered in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as an investment advisor with the Security and Exchange Commission, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisor Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. The IAE is in compliance with the National Instrument 31-103 Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations, or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. The IAE is in compliance with the National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations.